Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and torture. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In early 1521, 35-year-old Hernán Cortés was determined to conquer the Mexica city of Tenochtitlan. The great capital of the Aztec Empire was filled with riches, and Cortés wanted it all. The city was built on an island in Lake Texcoco, so his strategy was simple. He would ally with the villages around the lake to encircle Tenochtitlan. Once his coalition was ready, he would surround the lakeshore to lay siege to the city. For four months, Cortes and his Spaniards pressured neighboring city-states into joining his conquest. By springtime, he was nearly ready to begin the siege. In the middle of April, Cortes stopped at the indigenous city of Xochimilco on the shore of the lake. But as he settled in, the Mexica launched a surprise attack. They came from all sides, including assaults by land and water. As the onslaught began, Cortes and his men rushed to the city's central temple and scaled the massive steps. But to Cortes's horror, he looked down and saw 12,000 Mexica warriors descending upon Xochimilco. His plan had backfired. Instead of encircling Tenochtitlan, now he was completely surrounded. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're traveling back to the 16th century and exploring the lives of the Spanish conquistadors. Last time, we examined the origins of the Age of Discovery and how Hernán Cortés came to the Americas hungry for fame. After over a decade in the so-called New World, he finally got his chance to lead his own expedition. This time, we're exploring the contentious relationship between Cortés and Emperor Moctezuma, the leader of Tenochtitlan, and the ruthless force Cortés unleashed on the Aztec Empire. Coming up, we'll head back to Tenochtitlan. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In February 1519, 34-year-old Hernán Cortés left Cuba with a small army to explore the Yucatán. His mission was to find gold, convert the indigenous peoples to Christianity, and establish new cities for Spain. However, during his expedition, he heard tales of the great Mexica city of Tenochtitlan, capital of the Aztec Empire. He couldn't resist the lure of fame and fortune that conquering the city would bring him. So he broke his original charter and pressed on toward Tenochtitlan. 
During his journey, he made alliances with several of the indigenous peoples, while also brutally destroying those who resisted. The most infamous of these ruthless massacres happened at the city of Chololan. Cortez claimed to use such violence to send a message. He knew that Tenochtitlan's leader, Emperor Moctezuma, was the most powerful man in the region. Cortez needed Moctezuma to understand that he wasn't going to back down. As news of the Spanish invaders reached him, Moctezuma tried to stop Cortez from coming to his city. After the massacre of Chololan, Moctezuma even attempted to bribe the Spaniards to stop their conquest. However, the bribe only confirmed the wealth of the city, and Cortez refused to stop. He informed Moctezuma that it was his duty to tell Spain's King Charles V of Tenochtitlan's beauty, and thus Cortez had to see it for himself. He was coming to the city whether Moctezuma liked it or not. Finally, on November 8, 1519, Cortez arrived at Tenochtitlan and met Emperor Moctezuma personally. For the first time in history, emissaries of a powerful Old World civilization came face to face with the leader of a powerful New World civilization. Cortez's battle-scarred face gazed upon the regally dressed emperor with uncertainty. He'd never seen anything quite like it. Moctezuma's ears, lips, and nose were all pierced, and he wore gold-plated sandals stitched with jaguar skin. He was even wrapped in a cloak lined with jewels. A few silent moments later, Moctezuma stepped forward and sniffed Cortez. Cortez took it as a sign to make a move. He attempted to embrace Moctezuma, but was stopped by two Mexica lords. They claimed that he should never touch the emperor. Thankfully, neither Cortez nor Moctezuma took the etiquette snafu as a cause for violence. Instead, the Aztec emperor bestowed several gifts to Cortez and announced that the Spaniards should rest. As a sign of respect, Moctezuma invited them to use the luxurious Palace of Axayacatl, where Moctezuma's father resided when he was emperor. Later that evening, Cortez and Moctezuma met again, and the emperor told the Spaniard a story of Aztec history. Moctezuma described how a god led the Mexica to Tenochtitlan, only to leave them there. When the god returned, he discovered that the people refused to follow him anymore. Since that time, the Mexica had supposedly feared the spurned god would return to Tenochtitlan for revenge. Moctezuma believed Cortez had been sent by the gods, so he agreed to obey Cortez and the Spaniards. Allegedly, in what could have been a mistranslation, the Aztec emperor even submitted himself to King Charles V. After pledging his loyalty to Cortez, Moctezuma invited the Spaniards to roam about Tenochtitlan as they pleased. For the next week, Cortez and his men made themselves at home. Despite residing on an island in a lake, Tenochtitlan was a grand metropolis with an estimated population over 200,000. The massive central square was reportedly twice the size of the great square in the Spanish city of Salamanca. The enormous markets were stocked with ornate pottery, rich clothing, precious metals, and many varieties of food. And of course, there was plenty of gold. 
At one point, Moctezuma even took Cortez's men to a treasure room full of trinkets, goblets, and coins. Cortez noted that Tenochtitlan held, quote, every imaginable thing that could be found on Earth. But not everything impressed Cortez. When Moctezuma took Cortez to the Great Temple, the conquistador noted something insidious. The place was covered in blood. The priests, the bulls, the large green stone called the Tezcatl, even the walls covered with images of the Aztec gods, all of them had bloodstains. Cortez knew it could only mean one thing, human sacrifices. He abhorred the idea of human sacrifice. Cortez called the Aztec gods devils and suggested they be replaced with images of the Virgin Mary. Offended, Moctezuma responded, saying he would not have shown him the gods had he known that Cortez would say such dishonorable things. Moctezuma explained the importance of human sacrifice to the Aztecs. Because the Aztecs believed that their gods sacrificed themselves in order to create the world, it was up to the Mexica to repay the gods in blood. They were necessary for the sun to rise, for the crops to grow, and for victory in battle. Though Cortez allegedly apologized for the slight, touring the Great Temple was an ominous reminder that these were two very different civilizations coming together. And the reverence for human sacrifice kept the Spaniards on edge. Despite the relative peace between the two groups, it was only a matter of time before tensions spilled into violence. That moment finally came about a week after the Spaniards arrived. Throughout the region, Moctezuma had representatives to collect tribute from lesser towns and cities. One of those representatives was a man named Qualpapaca, and his territory was home to the Teutonic people. Since the Teutonics had been allied with the Spanish for years, they felt secure and refused to pay tribute to Tenochtitlan. Enraged, Qualpapaca attacked them. A group of Spaniards came to help their Teutonic allies. During the battle, several Spaniards were killed. Even worse, one Spaniard was captured and subsequently sacrificed, and Qualpapaca sent the man's head to Moctezuma as a war trophy. After learning of the attack, Cortez confronted Moctezuma and gave him an ultimatum. Cortez was willing to forgive the murder of one of his men if the emperor lived with Cortez under house arrest. If he refused, Cortez would execute him right then and there. Of course, Moctezuma protested these options. Cortez didn't understand that the emperor was more than a political leader. He was also the conduit to the gods. As such, part of his job was to provide bodies to be sacrificed, generally through war. If he was imprisoned, he'd be failing his sacred duty. Frustrated, Cortez turned to his indigenous mistress, Malinche. By now, Malinche was wholly devoted to Cortez, and she implored Moctezuma to agree to his terms. After her plea, Moctezuma reluctantly became Cortez's prisoner. But Cortez wasn't done showing the Mexica the extent of his dominance. A few weeks later, Qualpapaca and several other accomplices were captured and brought to Cortez. He immediately took them to the base of the Great Pyramid and burned them alive. 
Cortez forced Moctezuma to watch the brutal execution, making sure the screams and the smell of burnt flesh seared into the emperor's mind. The tactic worked, and according to Cortez, broke Moctezuma's resolve once and for all. As he told King Charles V in a letter, Cortez unchained Moctezuma and told him that he was free to return to his own palace. He proclaimed that Moctezuma could govern his empire, though Cortez would govern right alongside him. Humiliated, Moctezuma didn't leave, but remained in Cortez's palace, effectively under house arrest. For the next five months, the Spaniards lived amongst the Mexica in a mix of peace and anxiety. As promised, Cortes allowed Moctezuma to govern, which included performing ritual human sacrifices. As much as it disgusted Cortes, he knew that if he outright banned the practice, it could lead to rebellion by the Aztecs. And if a rebellion broke out, it would likely ruin his chance of seizing the city and its gold, which was still Cortez's priority. As the weeks passed, Cortez ordered his men to build boats to transport their treasure across the lake surrounding the city. But as Cortez took his time planning his next move, he received distressing news. In April 1520, a conquistador named Panfilo de Narvaez landed in Veracruz, the Spanish town Cortes established off the Gulf Coast. He had 1,000 Spanish soldiers with him, with one simple goal. By order of the governor of Cuba, Diego Velazquez, Narvaez was to bring the traitor Hernán Cortes back to Cuba by any means necessary. Coming up, Cortez's grip on Tenochtitlan unravels. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. For five months in 1519 and 1520, 35-year-old Hernán Cortés and his army lived among the powerful Mexica in Tenochtitlan. During those months, Cortés usurped power from Emperor Moctezuma and made plans to steal the city's wealth. But then, in the spring of 1520, Cortés came up against an old enemy and former friend, Diego Velázquez. When Cortes hurriedly left Cuba in February 1519, Velázquez was outraged by Cortes's insubordination. However, that anger quickly simmered, and he soon shrugged off the whole incident. But at the end of 1519, Velázquez caught wind that Cortes was sending gold directly to King Charles in Spain. Bypassing Cuba was a challenge to Velázquez's power, 
and he needed to stop it. So in March 1520, he sent Panfilo de Narvaez to take down Cortez. Word of Narvaez's arrival in Veracruz made Cortez nervous, especially when he learned that the indigenous Teutonics switched their allegiance to Narvaez. But the most troubling revelation was that Moctezuma was in contact with Narvaez's men. Despite being Cortez's puppet ruler, Moctezuma still had informants throughout the Aztec Empire. And thanks to his network, Moctezuma learned that Narvaez was in the area before Cortez did. When Cortez discovered Moctezuma's duplicity, he was outraged. But he couldn't kill or imprison the emperor for fear of a rebellion in Tenochtitlan. Cortez decided that he had only one option, he had to confront Narvaez head-on. In early May 1520, Cortez left Tenochtitlan with around 80 soldiers and would add another 260 men along the way. Meanwhile, he placed his lieutenant, Pedro de Alvarado, in charge of Tenochtitlan. Alvarado had 120 Spaniards with him, as well as a sizable number of indigenous Tlaxcalan allies. As Cortez marched east, he realized his men might refuse to go into combat against their fellow Spaniards. At the very least, he wasn't certain his men would fight Narvaez with the same passion they had fought hostile indigenous people. Hoping to get ahead of that problem, Cortez promised the men with him larger shares of gold and plunder. He also reminded them that their crusade was in the name of King Charles V, and Narvaez was a threat to their sacred duty. It seemed as if Cortez's bribery and brainwashing worked as they continued toward the confrontation without hesitation. However, the true test came when they neared the Teutonic city of Sempawayan, where Narvaez was encamped. There, Cortez received a letter from an ally claiming that he was leading his men to slaughter. To gauge his men's loyalty, Cortez read the letter aloud, then followed it up with an impassioned speech. Many of his contemporaries described this speech as his most charismatic ever. He even ended it by quoting one of his favorite lines from the Song of Roland, a French epic poem. He proclaimed, It is better to die for a good cause than to live in dishonor. The speech worked. His men hoisted Cortez on their shoulders, ready to die for their captain general, even in battle against their fellow Spaniards. On the evening of May 28th, Cortez launched a surprise attack on Sempawayan. During the battle, Narvaez lost an eye and was swiftly captured. With shackles around his hands and blood pouring down his face, he surrendered to Cortez. Cortez imprisoned Narvaez at Veracruz. Meanwhile, he convinced Narvaez's men to join his expedition, promising them riches beyond their imagination. With his power over the Spanish forces in the Yucatan now consolidated, Cortez could now focus his attention on conquering Tenochtitlan once and for all. Unfortunately for him, no sooner had Cortez defeated Narvaez than he received shocking news. Tenochtitlan was in rebellion. While Cortez was away, tensions between the Spaniards left in the city and the Mexica inhabitants rose dramatically. It reached a breaking point on the eve of an important festival called Tashkat. 
Like many Aztec festivals, human sacrifice was crucial, which unsettled Pedro de Alvarado and the others. When the festival began, Alvarado watched as the people danced in an almost euphoric manner. It terrified him so much that he had to put a stop to it. So he ordered his men to slaughter the Mexica. Almost immediately, the Mexica sounded the alarm and launched a counterattack. Overwhelmed, Alvarado and his men retreated to the palace of Axayacatl, where Moctezuma managed to quell most of the violence. But in terms of relations between the Spaniards and the Mexica, there was no going back. Cortez returned to Tenochtitlan, taking an alternative route to avoid any ambush. When he arrived on June 24th, he noticed an eerie silence throughout the entire city. Many inhabitants had gone into hiding, turning the city into a ghost town. But that silence didn't last long. For the next week, the Spaniards and Mexica warriors clashed sporadically throughout the city. The thundering sound of Spanish cannons did nothing to scare the Mexica anymore. They were tired of the intruders and fought without fear to expel them. Cortez tried to get Moctezuma to pacify his people again, but he had little desire to help Cortez anymore. Plus, he was no longer in power. His brother, Cuitlahuac, had taken charge of Tenochtitlan. Still, throughout the week, Moctezuma made sporadic, half-hearted pleas for the people to put down their weapons. They often answered those cries for peace with a volley of projectiles. On one particularly hostile evening, Moctezuma was struck in the chest and head. His injuries proved fatal, and on June 30th, 1520, Emperor Moctezuma II died. Despite Moctezuma falling at the hands of his own people, Cortes believed that the death of the former emperor would rally the Mexica. Not only that, his brother Cuitlahuac was actively organizing a resistance against the Spaniards. It was clear that Cortes and his men, including his Tlaxcalan allies, needed to leave Tenochtitlan immediately. On June 30th, the same day Moctezuma perished, Cortes decided to flee at nightfall. He and his men built a makeshift pontoon bridge across the lake. When the coast was clear, they gathered their cannons and gold and scurried away. But during their escape, a fleet of Mexica canoes suddenly descended upon them and rained down a cascade of arrows. Many of the Spaniards and Tlaxcalans were killed outright or drowned in the lake trying to escape the archers. The evening would be remembered as La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sorrows. By morning, Cortes and roughly 400 Spaniards made it to safety. Around 600 Spaniards died and thousands of Tlaxcalans. Many others were captured and used by the Mexica for sacrifices. The Spaniards also lost many of their cannons and most of the gold they shuttled out of the city. Their entire five-month stay in Tenochtitlan had been a waste. Despite his heavy losses, Cortes slowly continued the march to safety. By the middle of July, he and his men finally reached the city of Tlaxcala and rested. To Cortes, fleeing Tenochtitlan wasn't the end of his campaign. It was simply a minor setback. In his eyes, the great Mexica city belonged to King Charles V, 
He wouldn't leave the region without making sure it was firmly in Spanish control. However, his men wanted to call it quits. Exhausted and bloodied, many believed taking Tenochtitlan was impossible. They also didn't trust their Tlaxcalan allies, even though they'd fought valiantly alongside the Spaniards during the escape. Morale declined so much that the men threatened to sue Cortez for failure of leadership. Annoyed, Cortez listened to his men and their grievances, though he had no intention of stepping down. Driven by his deep hope for fame, Cortez told his men, What nation of those who have ruled the world has not once been defeated? What famous captain, I say, ever went home because he had lost a battle? Victories are not won by the many, but by the valiant. Fortune always favors the brave. Cortez convinced his men that it was their duty to show their indigenous allies that Spaniards were men of courage and honor. In essence, he called them cowards if they quit after a single defeat. The subtle manipulation worked, and his men agreed to march back into battle. For the next three weeks, the Spaniards rested and regrouped. Finally, at the beginning of August, Cortez and his coalition army of Spaniards and Tlaxcalan warriors set out to conquer Tenochtitlan once more. This time, Cortez knew defeat wasn't an option. He would succeed or die trying. Coming up, Cortez embarks on his final conquest of Tenochtitlan. Now back to the story. On the evening of June 30th, 1520, Mexico warriors attacked Hernán Cortés and his army as they were attempting to flee Tenochtitlan. Known as La Noche Triste, the surprise assault cost thousands of Spanish and Tlaxcalan lives, as well as much of their acquired treasure. Despite the heavy losses, Cortés escaped, regrouped, and vowed to return and conquer Tenochtitlan. The last thing he was going to do was to let one defeat ruin his quest for eternal glory. Cortez's first target was the strategically important garrison of Tepeaca. Situated on a mountain, Tepeaca overlooked the primary route between Tenochtitlan and the Gulf Coast. Capturing Tepeaca meant blocking the Mexica from a potential escape by sea. Cortez launched his attack in August, and it lasted for weeks. While the Tepeacans fought valiantly, they were no match for Cortez and his imposing coalition army. Finally, on September 5th, the Tepeacan chieftain surrendered. After the battle, Cortez's true ruthlessness revealed itself. For the first time, he allowed his men to enslave indigenous women and children. He branded them with the letter G, which stood for guerra, or war. He also used dogs to rip captured Tepeacan warriors apart and impaled them with lances and pikes. Cortez renamed the captured city as Segura de la Frontera and used it as his main base of operations. For the next four months, he launched a series of brutal campaigns throughout the region. By December, Cortez had firm control over the area between the Gulf and the Valley of Mexico. Many neighboring city-states immediately joined his alliance, hoping to save themselves from massacre. 
Sadly, that strategy couldn't save the indigenous people from an enemy they were wholly unprepared to fight, European disease. When the Spaniards came to the Americas, they brought with them old world illnesses, including smallpox. Historians agree that Narvaez's voyage from Cuba likely brought the disease to the Yucatan. The island colony suffered a smallpox outbreak just before Narvaez left, and not long after he arrived in the Yucatan, smallpox decimated the Mayas. The indigenous populations had no immunity to the disease, and it spread like wildfire. By autumn 1520, the sickness reached the Valley of Mexico, tearing through the various city-states. One of the victims was Moctezuma's brother and successor, Cuitlahuac. As smallpox obliterated the surrounding indigenous communities, Cortez marched toward Tenochtitlan. On December 31st, Cortez and his army arrived at Texcoco, another significant Aztec city-state located across the lake from Tenochtitlan. But it was deserted. The streets were empty and the palace was abandoned. All Cortez heard was a deafening silence. As it turned out, the roughly 10,000 men, women, and children of Texcoco fled just before the Spaniards arrived, hoping to save themselves from Cortez's brutal subjection. While the decision to flee saved lives, it also gave Cortez his strongest base of operations. From there, he plotted his final conquest of Tenochtitlan. Because it sat atop an island, a direct assault on the city would be nearly impossible. So he decided to lay siege to the city and construct armed boats called brigantines to battle the Mexica canoes. If a siege was to be successful, Cortez knew he also needed to fully encircle Tenochtitlan, including every village on the surrounding lakeshore. So throughout the winter and spring of 1521, Cortez and his indigenous allies sent destructive raids across the region. He primarily targeted any communities who were still allied with Tenochtitlan. But while Cortez consolidated his grip around Lake Texcoco, Tenochtitlan also built up their defense under the leadership of their new ruthless emperor. After Cuitlahuac died from smallpox, a warrior named Cuauhtémoc rose to power. Right away, he showed he wasn't to be trifled with. His first order of business was executing Moctezuma's sons to eliminate any potential rivals. Cuauhtémoc had every intention to fight the Spaniards to the death. Rather than hunker down to defend the city, he actively sought to take out Cortez. In the middle of April, Cortez inspected the progress of some of his alliances around the lake. While heading back to Texcoco, he stopped at the city of Xochimilco so that he and his men could rest. While Cortez was settling in, Mexica warriors ambushed the city. Cuauhtémoc sent wave after wave of men from all sides, surrounding the city and trapping the Spaniards inside. Somehow, Cortez managed to escape though his route remains a mystery. However, while Cortez got out, many of his men were captured and sent to Tenochtitlan, where Emperor Cuauhtémoc sacrificed his prisoners to the gods. Though Cuauhtémoc's attack seemed to remind the other cities of Tenochtitlan's power, it was too little too late. 
Despite losing men at Xochimilco, Cortes felt secure enough in his alliances that he ordered the brigantines to launch. On May 22, 1521, the siege of Tenochtitlan began. Throughout the summer, Cortes slowly depleted the city's resources. His boats chipped away at Cuauhtémoc's canoe fleet while cutting off food supplies for three months. But to the Spaniards' surprise, the Mexica refused to back down, and in fact even went on the offensive. Throughout the siege, Cuauhtémoc's warriors raided Cortez's encampments. Some of his men were captured, sacrificed, and in one notable instance, Cuauhtémoc displayed severed heads to instill fear into the Spaniards. Despite their attacks, Cortez patiently and systematically closed in on Tenochtitlan. His cannons destroyed buildings, while his indigenous allies brutally raided Mexico's settlements around the city. Finally, the Spaniards made a major breakthrough. They captured Emperor Cuauhtémoc. However, even in shackles, the Mexica emperor adamantly refused to bend the knee. But with his city in ruins and his people starving, he had no choice. On August 13, 1521, Cuauhtémoc officially surrendered. Tenochtitlan was now under Spanish control and the 200-year-old Aztec Empire was no more. Hernán Cortés had once called Tenochtitlan the most beautiful thing in the world. But after his attacks, it was little more than rubble. Over the next several months, Cortés ordered the metropolis rebuilt and renamed Mexico City. Meanwhile, Cortez and his men scoured the city for stores of gold. However, they soon discovered they'd overestimated how much the city actually held. And the rest was lost during the disastrous escape of La Noche Triste. Sadly, the Spaniards turned to tragic alternatives to enrich themselves. Many of the indigenous prisoners of war were sold into slavery throughout the Caribbean. Some Spanish generals were granted newly established encomiendas, where indigenous people worked in near slavery. As Cortes asserted his rule over New Spain, word of his conquest finally reached the ears of King Charles V, the ruler of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor. But Charles was busy dealing with the Protestant Reformation and reacted to the news with little more than a shrug. Unfortunately for Cortes, King Charles's indifference opened the door for a new enemy to emerge, an ambitious bishop named Juan Rodriguez de Fonseca. Fonseca had been a part of the Spanish court for years. He wielded a great deal of influence, especially when it came to the Americas. The success of Cortes's conquest challenged Fonseca's authority, and thus he felt Cortes had to go. In 1521, Fonseca managed to secure the appointment of a man named Cristobal de Tapia as governor of New Spain. When Tapia arrived on the mainland, he had a warrant for Cortez's arrest. However, just as in Veracruz, Cortez had established new towns throughout the region and filled their town councils with his supporters. Under Spanish law, these local municipalities had a great deal of power. Thus, when Tapia tried to overthrow Cortes, the town councils ignored him. 
Without local support, Fonseca was unable to move against Cortez. Undeterred, Fonseca struck again a year later. By the middle of 1522, King Charles finally realized the significance of Cortez's conquest and decided he wanted to be more proactive when it came to colonial administration. Seeing this change in the king, Fonseca pounced on the opportunity to whisper in Charles's ear against Cortez. Before long, this influence led Charles to commission a special committee to investigate accusations of rebellion against Cortez. However, Cortez's years working as a notary among Spanish politicians played to his advantage. He knew how to write convincingly and sent a series of letters describing the harrowing conquest as well as a hefty example of captured gold. With this evidence, the special committee eventually absolved Cortez, and on October 11, 1522, Charles officially appointed him the governor of New Spain. Despite being named governor, Cortez realized very quickly he had no interest in actually administering the colony. Deep down, he was an explorer, and he constantly yearned for adventure. He looked for new opportunities to venture into the unknown, including an expedition into the heart of Honduras in 1524. However, because Cortez was neglecting his duties as governor, it gave his enemies an opening to tear him down. Under their influence, King Charles reorganized the colonial administration and limited Cortez's authority. Frustrated, Cortez realized he had to defend himself before Charles personally. So in December 1528, Cortez returned to Spain. He brought with him 40 indigenous men, animals, and other New World cultural trinkets and jewels. The gambit worked. Charles quickly took a liking to Cortez and declared him the Marquis of the Valley of Oaxaca. This vast territory stretched throughout southern Mexico from the Gulf to the Pacific Ocean. And with it, Cortez received one of the largest encomiendas in the Americas, with 23,000 indigenous serfs. Cortez had finally achieved the dreams of his youth. When he was a teenager, he told his father he preferred to be rich in fame rather than goods, and now Charles V had given Cortez both. If there was one downside to his new title of Marquis, it was that he was no longer governor of New Spain. While he was disappointed that he couldn't rule over his greatest conquest, he was free to continue exploring the New World, including discovering Baja California for Spain in 1536. Cortez's remaining years were relatively quiet and obscure. After participating in a short expedition into Algiers in 1541, he returned to Spain and lived in Seville for several years. But Cortez grew increasingly restless. Despite being in his early 60s, Cortez still yearned for adventure and started to plan his return to Mexico. However, before he could leave, he came down with dysentery and died on December 2, 1547. Like so many Spanish men who grew up in the wake of Reconquista and Columbus's voyages, Hernán Cortez sought adventure, fortune, and fame. But his quest for glory resulted in the destruction of the Aztec Empire. Using both duplicitous diplomacy and sheer brutality, 
Cortes became the first conquistador to end a powerful New World civilization. Along the way, tens of thousands of indigenous men, women, and children died. And the ones who survived were forced to work their former land under Spanish overseers and pray to the Christian God. Not only that, Cortes's success with the cross and the sword paved the way for more expeditions deeper into the Americas. Cortes was gone, but Spain wasn't done expanding its empire. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next time, we'll dive into the life of Pedro de Alvarado, the conquistador who served as Cortez's strongman and led the horrific massacre at Tenochtitlan. For more information on Hernán Cortez, amongst the many sources we used, we found the books Conquistadores, A New History of Spanish Discovery and Conquest by Fernando Cervantes, and Conquest, Montezuma, Cortez, and the Fall of Old Mexico by Hugh Thomas, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Joshua Kern. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free, only on Spotify. Spotify.